Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined remotely by co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, it was probably your most energetic greeting in a while. We're we're a week into the bubble now. I mean, it's at this point, it's almost like we're not in the grand scheme of life because we're both still cooped up in our homes doing this podcast. Yeah, we're really in, in our own bubbles a- at the end of yeah, the Yeah, exactly. But on a on a professional level, from a work standpoint, other than the fact we're doing it at home, I think there is like a sense of normalcy returning where it's just kind of like back to watching basketball, breaking basketball down, getting jokes off about basketball and recording this podcast. So we're a week in. Where do you want to go today? Man, there's a whole lot to talk about, isn't there? I mean, first we should say the, the integrity of the bubble to this point has held, you know, as well as we could have hoped. Straight it was week. a dignified bubble. Th- third straight week in which there are no cases. I know, um, I think it was Henry Abbott reported that there have been some false positives, but they put these new protocols in place so that players uh, don't have to deal with any kind of an extended quarantine when that happens. They're able to get tested again. And presumably after they produce two negatives, uh, you know, subsequently after getting the false positive, then they're able to just re-enter the bubble. And like, there have been a couple of weird circumstances where like Jimmy Butler maybe was one example and we don't entirely know what happened there, but like an example maybe of what may have been a false positive where a player is sort of mysteriously uh, excused from practice. And I know Jay Crowder had a comment about Butler being in quarantine and nobody quite knew what was going on. So it feels like maybe that's what happened there. But um I mean, I totally agree as far as it just sort of starting to feel normal, right? And for the longest time, I was like, even once this started, I wasn't really going to have any confidence, not any confidence, but I wasn't going to have a ton of confidence in it staying completely insulated. And to this point, that's obviously been the case. And I think I've just accepted that they're they're going to be able to pull this off. And I'm not, anything could still go wrong here, but... uh Obviously, I think all, all signs have been positive to this point. And also, like, the basketball has been pretty damn good. Um, I know, I feel like, 90% of games have come down to the wire. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that. Like, do you, do you think that that has something to do with the fact that there's no home court advantage? So, so there isn't one hmm. team that is kind of... Because I think, you know, most, most of the data suggests that home court gives uh, you know the home team an average of like two two and a half additional points so maybe right. maybe the fact that that doesn't exist is part of the reason so many of these games have come down to the wire also just the teams that are playing maybe are like more evenly matched um and I, I remember talking about this when they had kind of announced the 22 team format and like the eight game seating stage where it's like you cut out the bad teams you throw some stakes into the mix with the possibility of the play-in tournament and some seeds that are up for grabs, you end up with a product where it's like the games are kind of more exciting and of higher quality than a lot of what we typically see in like late March, early April. Even just look at that Clippers-Suns game when Devin Booker hits the game winner. For the most part, if if that same matchup happens, Clippers-Suns towards the end of this season in a regular schedule in what would probably be with six games left for both teams. The chances that all those guys actually play, let alone the chances that we actually get a really good competitive game between those two teams is slim to none, to be honest. And instead you end up in a situation where the Clippers probably because yeah, they're a contender that doesn't have much to play for, but they're still trying to hold on to the two seed and, you know, more so just, I I think trying to go into the playoffs with a bit of a rhythm and the Suns end up in a situation where they're still in the playoff race and you get this great game. Like honestly, one of my favorite games of the year so far. So yeah, I think that's a perfect example of that. I don't want to beat a dead horse too much because I know I I wrote about it and also spoke about it on last week's podcast. But speaking to that, I still think that there's a little bit left to be desired because I think the games would be that much better and the races would be that much better if, like we mentioned last week, you know, the NBA had scrapped just, just for this unique season scrap the conferences gone to the top 16 make it because you'd end up in a situation right now where like the race would be insane for those last spots and again i know there's no point talking about it anymore because it's not the case but it uh it really does suck when you watch the wizards and the nets and you know the wizards at this point are out anyway but even just watching the nets and now even the magic like aaron gordon's hurt now too no one really knows what the timeline is there and 
And then you watch these teams like the Suns that I mean, this might all be in vain. And it's uh, a bit of a downer, I guess. Was that Gordon injury from the Lowry foul the other night? Yeah, I think it was the Lowry foul, which then led to Aaron Gordon calling Kyle Lowry a bitch and Kyle Lowry telling him to meet him in room 836, I believe. Very reminiscent of when Kyle Lowry yeah. told Ben Simmons to meet him in the tunnel and then did the 100 meter dash to meet him in the tunnel. That's that's definitely Lowry's signature move, eh? It was like... Yeah. Just just daring the guy to meet him on his level. Figuratively and move, literally, man. apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a power move if you think about it. Yeah. Like someone's gonna someone's gonna try to like challenge you or punk you. you. The next step is you you set the parameters for the fight and see how down they really are. Yeah, you gotta be willing to put something behind those words. But I, I actually disagree with you a little bit. Like I think when it gets down to the first round of the playoffs, I will definitely wish that rather than having the um, you know, the Nets in there and possibly even the Magic that we could have a couple of these Western Conference teams. But I sort of feel like for now, it makes this playoff race more exciting that it, there is this like five team pile up and that every game for all of those teams is so meaningful. Like I've had by far the most fun watching those teams games because there's like the greatest sense of urgency, the the highest stakes. In the big picture, it's like, okay, what are the stakes really? Like any number of those teams, I think is just going to get woodshedded in the first round by the Lakers, but... Still making the playoffs. But, though, like. but the difference between making the playoffs or not making the playoffs, I think is, you know, substantially higher than what the stakes are for most of these teams, which are really just... Like there are some matchup mechanics going on. And I think Denver, for instance, you were talking about the Clippers wanting to stay in the two seed, which I don't know if they do or they don't. Like they they beat the Mavericks pretty soundly again last night. They're 3-0 and against them this season. I don't think they're really sweating that matchup at all, but Denver seems pretty intent on staying at number three and avoiding Dallas in the first round because, you know, they were already playing without uh, three of their starters last night, and then they rest four other starters in the fourth quarter against Portland and essentially just allowed the Blazers to win that game. They don't seem to have any vested interest at all in moving up and like they were at a point where they were only a game back of the Clippers but I think much like they did last year when they sort of engineered the matchups in order to stay away from like they they wanted to stay essentially out of the Rockets bracket so that they wound up playing the Spurs in the first round and it was going to be either the Blazers or the Thunder in the second round they wound up getting the Blazers and almost making it to the conference finals but uh, it seems like they're doing the same the same shenanigans this year where they're uh, they're really trying to engineer the matchup that they think is going to be most favorable. And it doesn't seem like they have any interest in playing Dallas in round one. Sound like frauds to me. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. I, I like the Nuggets. I don't think it's as much of a joke to call the Philadelphia 76ers frauds this season. But uh, no laughing matter in that Ben Simmons uh, hurt again. You know, one of the reasons the Sixers were to us, probably the most intriguing team in the bubble, them and the Rockets, was that after it looked like Simmons was originally done for the year with that pinched nerve in his back, the shutdown allowed him to get back to the lineup, get healthy, that made the position change, we moved the power forward, and there was so much intrigue there about whether they could hit that two-way ceiling. I mean, we don't know a timeline yet, but you know, a, a simple Google search and a little digging into injuries like this across all sports usually you're looking at a minimum of four to six weeks and in the biggest nba example andrew bynum 12 years ago he suffered a knee cap patella subluxation which for anyone that doesn't know it's it's essentially like a partial dislocation where it moves out of place and then pops back in on its own andrew bynum had this happen at the end of january in 2008 the lakers made the finals that year and he never made it back so you know, it, it seems best case is like maybe a month, a little more. And worst case is like, we'll see him in 2021. Um, we don't know for sure yet. I think it's it's not a stretch to assume his season might be done. And if that's the case, there are a lot of questions to be asked of the Sixers. I mean, there's big picture questions to be asked um, in terms of how much longer the Sixers can keep trying to fit a square peg into a round hole and make this Ben Simmons-Joel Embiid partnership work on the offensive end. There's smaller picture questions about whether the Sixers might actually be better off in the short term if you look at the numbers when Joel Embiid is on the court with Ben Simmons. So where do you want to take that? I don't necessarily think that they're better off in the short term. I just, and certainly this lowers their ceiling considerably. Like if he's not back for the playoffs, 
Uh, it's just all this talk about the the potential gear that they can hit. You know, um, their their sort of um, high end outcome uh, and and the possibility of them just sort of putting the pieces together and maybe going on a playoff run. I feel like that does go out the window for the rest of the seeding games. I, I don't feel like it's going to have too much of an effect. Um, and I actually think in a weird way, maybe it'll help them just because I think they've had so much success playing through Embiid in the post. And if their reaction to not having Simmons out there is to just run more of their offense through Embiid in the post and make sure that he's constantly surrounded by four shooters, I think their offense could actually be pretty devastating. Um, Obviously, defensively, and they've already struggled defensively in the bubble. I know they had a bit of a bounce back against the Wizards. Not that you know we should put too much stock in that, but like um, they had a really hard time defending both the Pacers and the Spurs. Some of that was just great shot making from both of those teams, but there was also just like a distinct lack of physicality. I think on the Sixers front, and it's like they have all this size, which is supposed to intimidate their opponents. Is like the the reason that we thought they could be such an imposing defense this year. And like, they barely use it, you know? I mean, obviously like they want to have Embiid dropping back. That's part of their defensive strategy. And they forced a ton of mid-range jumpers in both of those games. But it was also like guys on the perimeter kind of allowing dribble penetration, not staying attached, going around screens, not putting in good rear view contests. It's like TJ Warren is just coming off that staggered pin down and getting wide open looks from the mid-range. And you know, DeMar DeRozan, Rudy Gay on the Spurs, kind of the same thing. So their defense was already struggling. And uh, this is just going to make it, I think, that much more difficult for them to defend at a high level, I guess. But I I think their offense might actually improve in the short term. Yeah, and even on the defensive end, like, I mean, yeah, their performance in the bubble has been um, a little strange how how bad they've been really defensively. But um, even without Simmons, like... if you just kind of think of it logistically, like they still have a ton of length that they can put out there in front of Joel Embiid. Um, Joel Embiid at his best is almost like kind of a one-man defense with his ability to protect the rim. Like I, I agree that their ceiling is definitely impacted by this and their defensive ceiling isn't as high without Ben Simmons, who's like an absolute freak on that end of the floor and is obviously can guard one through five. But I still feel like with all that length and with Joel Embiid behind all that length protecting the rim, like you should still be able to cobble together a pretty good defense. And then you look at like the numbers when whenever they've had Joel Embiid on the court without Ben Simmons and surrounding him with shooting, essentially. I know we were talking off air yesterday and you mentioned that you think they'll be fine on that end because they can just play through Joel Embiid in the post, which like, you know, unless he's matched up against Marc Gasol, Joel Embiid is by far the most dominant post, like low post presence left in the game. Yeah, you surround him with shooting. And again, on the other end, you've got the length and his rim protection. Like that's still a good two-way team. And I'm I'm really fascinated to see how this goes now because look, it's not going to be fair to Ben Simmons either, but like all it takes is the Sixers winning their next two games, you know, in pretty impressive fashion. I don't even know who their next two opponents are, but you know how the the NBA news cycle works and uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm guilty of it and will be guilty of it too, because if they win their next two games in impressive fashion, like, I, you know, the, the questions will be there about like, yeah. I have no doubt that you have a host of tweets saved in your drafts, <laughs> just ready to get them off at the first sign actually, of, yeah. of any, of any Ewing theory on the part of the Sixers. Yeah. But the thing is, I don't even necessarily think it's a Ewing theory because like the original Ewing theory was, you know, just that like a team loses its star and, and and gets better, or at least in the short term plays better. There's like some kind of like all for one, one for all mentality. But with this, like to, Joel Embiid to me is still their best player. It's not like they're they're losing stars in general. And now there's like this starless, scrappy team. Like you're still left with a team of Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, Al Horford, Josh Richardson. Like it's not some talentless, scrappy team. And again, like, you know, I've been saying this for a while, but at, okay, three years together, I get that is not enough to just give up on a young duo that does have this high ceiling and and whatever. And they, you know, say what you want about being disappointing. The fact is they were a buzzer beater away from going to overtime in game seven with the eventual champions last year. Two years ago, I don't even know how fair any expectations were. Ben Simmons was still a rookie. 
And then, okay, this year was like the truly disappointing one where they were on pace to be like a 48-win team and honestly looked like maybe a first round out. So yeah, so I understand that like it's not even necessarily fair to say they're this giant disappointment three years in. I also think like we're getting to a point three years in where the question becomes, how big does the sample size need to be before we do maybe accept that like it's not an indictment on either one of these guys. It's just sometimes like two playing styles don't fit together. Well, but the sample, size think... is, the sample size is mixed is the thing. Like if you look at their numbers from Simmons's rookie season, their on-court net rating together was incredible. It was in like the double digits per hundred possessions. So I do think that it can work. It makes it more difficult, I think, to to construct the roster around them than it would be, you know, if two guys were maybe a little bit more seamless or natural fit. But I don't think it's impossible for those guys to fit together. I just don't think that this this current Sixers team has the right pieces around them in order for it to work. And I mean, the other thing is like, presumably Al Horford's going to jump back into the starting lineup now. And the lineups with him and Embiid playing together this year have really not been good. Like far worse than uh, Embiid and Simmons playing together. So, so you'd be surprised. I looked at this. Okay. Line with Embiid and Simmons on the court together this year. Uh, the 76ers have a net rating of plus 0.6 per 100 possessions. Embiid, Horford, Richardson, Harris, Milton. That that five-man lineup throughout the course of the year is actually about almost like plus four per 100 possessions. And again, now, now obviously we're talking a super tiny sample size, but if you look at it just in the bubble, mm-hmm. lineups with Embiid and Horford on the court have actually crushed it. So... I was I was actually of the same mind that like they've been terrible together this year, and then you, I started looking at lineups, and there are like a lot of or at least a few like Embiid Horford lineups where they performed better than Embiid Simmons lineups. Yeah, I I mean I think that's probably pretty noisy. Um, I mean I know certainly the like the lineups with Milton essentially in place of Simmons in the starting lineup. Like that happened when when Simmons was out with that with that back injury just after the All Star break and Shake Milton literally could not miss, and, and I don't think it's like a huge sample. And and outside of that, uh, the Embiid Horford minutes have been kind of rough. I'm not saying that Embiid Horford just unequivocally can't work, but I, I don't think that that pairing is any more seamless than the Embiid Simmons pairing. So that'll be interesting to see. Although I do think Horford, you know, after what was a rough first game against the Pacers has looked quite a bit better. So we'll see. I mean, I think, you know, we'll obviously be just watching this team with a good deal of interest as we have been all season. And I'm like you curious to see what it looks like and if it looks really good, which I mean, I'm not taking anything off the table in this bizarro Sixers season. Like it's become just so impossible to predict that if this leads to them suddenly coalescing and like going out and winning a first round series, I don't think it would surprise me all that much at this point. Uh, it, it's tough because Simmons is obviously their their best option to throw at like an opposing star player, whether that player is a or a wing, um, you know, or a power forward or even a center. Simmons is kind of their Swiss Army knife who can handle any assignment that they need him to handle. And without him, I I mean who kind of steps into that role. Like, I guess it's Horford, but <laughs> I, I don't know if uh, if you love that as as sort of being your primary option for an opposing star, especially because, like, I, I, was really high, I, I was really high on Josh Richardson coming into this season, and he's been fairly disappointing to me this year. So yeah. I do think defensively uh, they might struggle a bit. By the way, Sixers remaining schedule, Orlando, Portland, Phoenix, Toronto, Houston. So pretty tough. And then just, yeah, before we wrap it up, the 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 overall numbers I wanted to mention were, so for the season, Simmons and Embiid on together, I mentioned plus 0.6. Simmons on without Embiid plus 2.1, uh, but that is a bit of a smaller sample, sample size. And then 586 minutes this season, which not a huge sample size, but solid. Embiid on without Simmons plus 12.3 and then obviously in the tiny sample size of the bubble those numbers are even more out of whack you end up in in the bubble alone they're minus 3.6 with both guys on Mm. minus 15 with just Simmons on and plus 23.7 with just Embiid on so well another thing to keep in mind too is as much as you know they Brett Brown talked about how oh 
well, Ben Simmons is a power forward now. I think, you know, that had more to do with like the Sixers lineup construction than it did any kind of role change. And, and they did it like Milton was bringing the ball up more frequently, but I, I, I think it's going to be tough, man, for the Sixers because they don't really have a ton of like competent ball handlers. And it's even just like bringing the ball up the floor has been a bit of an adventure for Milton and like Howell Neto at times in the bubble. Like those guys have gotten picked in the backcourt on a few different occasions. So I don't think it's going to be any kind of picnic for uh, the Sixers just to get into their offense to begin with and like make those entry passes to Embiid in the post. I think it could be potentially a little bit janky. So um, yeah, man, I'm just... uh, I'm just beyond curious about what this is going to look like. And I also do hope, obviously, that Simmons can make it back in time for the playoffs and that we still get a chance to see whether this team can um, put it all together at the right time. I agree with you in the sense that I, the, the issues are probably more with the roster construction around them as opposed to just these two guys. I think there are their issues. They have their own issues there. But for sure, the, the roster construction hasn't helped. It's just you start thinking about it and you look at their cap sheet. And it's kind of like, how do they really... Unless you're talking about like the the sixth or the fifth through tenth guys on the roster, it's like sure they can filter through those guys. But like, look at the money they owe Al Horford over the next few years between Horford, uh, Embiid, Simmons, and Harris. And if you don't want to move one of Simmons or Embiid, like I, you're not probably moving any of those guys. So they don't exactly have a ton of wiggle room or even asset capital to work with if they did want to keep both stars and build around them. And I think that's where it gets tricky as well. Yeah, no, that's the big issue, right? Is, uh, you know, whether it's Horford or Tobias Harris, like those guys are going to be really difficult to move on their contracts, at least for anything resembling, you know, an upgrade, a return that is going to improve the team. So they've sort of gotten themselves stuck here. And uh, it's just incumbent on the guys that they have, I guess, to figure it out. Um, the other thing is, like, I, I forgot about Thibel. I wonder if, like, do you think that they would slide Thibel into the starting lineup instead of Horford and use him as sort of their... You mean when Simmons is back, like, with Simmons? Or you mean now? No, now. Like, to kind of use him as, like, their star stopper, essentially. And Honestly, you like Horford off of the bench. I wouldn't hate that. I mean, I'd defensively, who doesn't want to see more Matisse Thibel unless you're an opponent? Like, Right. And then, you, I mean, you just essentially slide Tobias Harris up to the four, which I think is probably Harris's best position. Yeah. You have Thibel at the three, Richardson at the two, and Milton at the one. I mean, Thibel... Also, he can, and Milton's he can like, shoot it okay. Like, Yeah. Also, Milton's really long. Yeah. Like, I don't know if people realize this, but like, he's got crazy length. So, Not um, super strong, though, is the thing. I th- no. And, but, you know, he can get his hands in, like, passing lanes and, and be kind of disruptive on the perimeter just because of his length. But, yeah, now, yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I'd like to see what that looks like. If you have a, a Milton, Richardson, Thibel, Harris, Embiid lineup, I feel like you can still make that work enough on the offensive end. And, again, it goes back to what I was saying. Where like, you still end up in a situation where you've got a ton of length and defensive ability in front of Embiid. Like, I still think that can work. And, man, it will be... Can you imagine a situation where like the Sixers do get, I mean, whatever the version of hot is in the bubble with like four games left, but go on a bit of a run going into the playoffs, like somehow beat the Celtics or like he, like, I don't know, in the first round. And then it just works out timing wise that like Simmons comes back for the second round in a series they should lose anyway. And they lose it like the, you know what I mean? It just, the, the hot takes that'll lend itself to, even though the logical explanation would just be like, well, the opponent got tougher, so they yeah. lost. Well, that's why it's important for us <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to keep things in perspective and to, always, well, I'm not making any promises to always be aware of the context because context is always important. Um, you want to talk, yeah, let's, uh, Jonathan Isaac injury after the Simmons injury. Where do you want to go here? Yeah, sure. We can talk about the Isaac injury, I guess, just, just to stay on theme. Uh, that was such a bummer. Like, man, um, for the Magic Magic fans, for Isaac himself, um, like, the Magic have been, I mean, I wrote about this, and what, and what I wrote was, like, they're basically on a highway to Middleville. And if there, if there is going to be an off-ramp on the horizon, like, you know, Jonathan Isaac is it. Like that, that is the guy on the team who profiles as a potential future star. Like I thought 
he was one of the five best defenders in the league this year when he was healthy. I think he absolutely could have wound up on the all-defensive first team um, if he hadn't sprained his knee the first time around. And he looked to me like a guy who was going to be competing for Defensive Player of the Year awards for the next few years. And now I just don't know. He tears his ACL, so he is probably going to miss all of next season, realistically. Uh, The injuries are kind of piling up for him, too. And you just sort of start to wonder a long term about what that's going to mean. And for the Magic, it's like this is their sort of one blue chip guy, Aaron Gordon, who I've always been high on, as you know, is just in his sixth year, seems like has sort of plateaued. And I, I do think he can continue to get better, but I don't, I've sort of given up hope on him being like a multiple time all star. Whereas with Isaac, I think he really, and, and arguably still does have a chance to be like a real franchise cornerstone, but they're going to be without him. I think for most of next season, if not all of it, they don't know what he's going to look like when he comes back. And now they got to figure out what to do with his contract. Cause he was going to be coming up for an extension this off season. I kind of expected the magic to, I mean, if they didn't max him out, probably give him something close to a max. And now not only did, you know, I don't think he's going to get that extension uh, unless he's willing to maybe sacrifice a little bit of annual value for some long-term security. But then if he doesn't play next season and then he hits restricted free agency, you know, what do the magic do with that then? If they don't really have the data points to, to know for sure whether he's going to be the same guy when he comes back. Part of the concerning thing too is given his contract status and what was at stake for him, like it's a little concerning that it's the same knee he had already hurt the season. He was playing with a knee brace on in the bubble. And it, you know, obviously not at all insinuating anyone forced him to play. Like he clearly wanted to play. But again, it's just a little, anytime stuff like this happens, it's concerning because you start to wonder like, you know, did he rush it back? Um, should he have just sat the rest of the year out? The Magic weren't going anywhere anyway. Um, and yeah, especially if if it ends up impacting his earnings potential, which it, uh, I mean, you laid it out clearly, it seems like it's going to affect his earnings potential. So that's concerning and kind of troubling. And then just, you know, I, I will say that I think, not that either of us thought the magic or any kind of threats in the playoffs, but I will say Isaac not being there also makes it that much easier for the Bucks and the Raptors, right? Because even for the Raptors, who I think would have overall handled the Magic pretty easily again, maybe another like five-gamer or something, Isaac was still tr- a troubling presence in his own right, right? He could bother Pascal Siakam against the Bucks. The Bucks probably sweep them, but do I think he could trouble or frustrate Giannis Antetokounmpo for a game or two? Sure, and then even that comes with its own risks. And so I think him not being there, uh, I know obviously it's more important to the Magic and their future and to Isaac himself, but even if you want to look at it kind of big picture Eastern Conference-wise, I think... It just makes the Bucks and Raptors jobs that much easier because there's really there's no one on that team that you're worried about in the playoffs on either end of the court. I'm sorry, and and I think Isaac was that guy on the defensive end. I think his defense what is that game changing? And yeah. if you're the Raptors and the Bucks now, to me, there's almost no difference between the Magic and the Nets. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd go quite that far. I think the Magic are still considerably more talented than the Nets. I, I don't think it's going to matter against either of the teams that they're likely to play in the first round, but. Um, but the Magic are still an NBA team, and I know the Nets, <laughs> the Nets somehow managed to pull off a win against the Bucks reserves in in what was a fairly embarrassing performance a couple of days ago. But yeah, I don't think they're really in the same league. And I, I think, I mean, one one sort of upshot of this is like I've talked, and and I'm certainly not the only one. Like it's been a subject of much speculation over the last couple of years, but like. Aaron Gordon has just seen like the kind of textbook definition of a trade chip because he is valuable, but not so valuable that like the magic have to keep him. Uh, he has the sort of skill set where I think he could fit a lot of different places. And I think he could really help a contending team. And he's on a great contract that descends in value. And there's this sort of log jam in the front court with this team that I think is sort of holding them back. And specifically with him and Isaac, you know, and Isaac being the guy I think the Magic are attached to long term, they essentially play the same position. They haven't had a ton of success playing alongside one another. I I think this team has long needed an upgrade in the backcourt. They need more shot creation, more ball handling and more shooting. And the best way for them to do that was, I think, to use Gordon as a trade chip. And now with Isaac looking like he's probably not going to play next season, then I think they probably have to hold on 
to Gordon for another year. And so that's another just sort of ripple effect where it's like they may have had a chance to rebalance their roster and deal from a position of strength in order to address a position of weakness. Uh, and maybe that was the way that they were going to be able to take that next step next season, along with some more internal improvement. And I feel like that option maybe is off the table now. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Let's move from the kind of depressing state of the Orlando Magic to a much more upbeat and exciting um, topic, which is that new look Western Conference playoff race we talked about uh, a few minutes ago. We, we combined to write a piece about, about the race and what it looks like now after some developments in, in that race. I mean... I guess it's sticking with bad news. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. being sidelined for the season. You start looking at it like the Blazers are rolling. They've got Nurkic back and he's rolling. The Suns are the hottest team in the West and honestly, maybe the most fun team to watch right now. The Spurs, I think, have lost a couple games in a row after it looked like they were making a push, but obviously they're still very much in it. The Kings, like it feels like they're out of it. And then you look at it and it's like they're still only two back of Portland to get into the play-in. And then the Pelicans, who have been probably the most disappointing team, easily the most disappointing team out of this group, currently 13th in the West. They're only two games back of Portland, but they'd have to leapfrog four teams over the next week. As it stands right now, Memphis is in eighth, Portland's in the play-in spot. I think we can both expect the Blazers to overtake the Grizzlies who might actually go 0-8 in the bubble and now without Jackson as well but do you still think those will be the two teams in some fashion or do you think Memphis is going to drop right out of this thing like into 10th and someone else will take the playing spot too I, I think it's entirely dependent on how their opponents approach these last few games because if their next four opponents are just playing all their guys and, and treating it like an important game I think the Grizzlies are going 0-8 because their next four games are Thunder, Raptors, Celtics, Bucks, And they were already struggling. That's already a murderer's row. But Jaron Jackson uh, has torn his meniscus. Again, just, I mean, the injuries are starting to pile up in the bubble, right? Like it's just another kind of gut punch for a team that was already reeling a bit. I mean, one one thing for the Grizzlies is like they really just haven't shot the ball well. They sort of struggle to space the floor. Spacing's been an issue for them ever since they made that deadline day deal to get Justice Winslow. I loved that trade for them. I still love that trade for them because I, I'm a big believer in Justice Winslow's upside. And I think when he's healthy, he's going to fit there really nicely. It was such a bummer to me when he got hurt because one of like the most interesting things for the Grizzlies, really for any team um, that, that I was looking forward to was seeing how he fit there. And like their best shooter is Jaron Jackson, without a doubt. Um, like I like to refer to him as a six foot 11 shooting guard because he, first of all, was averaging over nine three-point attempts per game in the bubble. But it's also the way that he gets those threes, which is like with a ton of off-ball movement, um, obviously a lot of it coming in the pick and pop, but a lot of it's just like running off of pin downs, and flare screens and just like stopping on a dime like that shot that he hit to tie the game against the Spurs before DeRozan draws that foul on the pump fake to win. I mean, it's it's a sideline out of bounds play where he's cutting across the middle of the floor. He veers back toward the strong side corner, takes the inbound pass while he's facing the sideline and in one motion just catches the ball while he's sort of tiptoeing behind the three point line, lets it fly with that gonzo three-point shooting stroke over Rudy Gay who's literally right in his face with both hands raised and and ties the game and it's just like you you will never I mean I don't know about never but like you don't see anybody that size moving with that kind of fluidity and grace um shooting with that quicker release and it was kind of exhilarating to watch and it really feel felt like uh he was making sort of a star turn in Orlando and so for him to go down now is, is pretty devastating. And they still really haven't, you know, with Winslow out and the guys they gave up, you know, Jay Crowder and Solomon Hill, who were soaking up so many minutes at the three and the four for them, they haven't really filled that vacuum on the wing. 
Uh, John Morant really hasn't shot the ball well in Orlando. Um, Dylan Brooks has just been like the bad Dylan Brooks. His decision-making has been such a mess. And it's it's just disappointing because this team's had such a feel-good season. And it kind of sucks to see it potentially ending on such a sour note. But like, maybe you know, those teams that they're playing, like the Raptors are basically locked into the two seed. The Celtics are basically locked into three. The Thunder, I guess, still have seeding to play for. Um, the box have, have, have one seed wrapped up. So maybe, you know, maybe the Grizzlies luck out. Those teams are resting starters and they still get themselves into the play-in scenario. But it's entirely possible that they just drop out entirely, which I feel like would have been inconceivable coming into the bubble. One thing working in their favor right now is that Phoenix is scheduled. The Suns still have Heat, Thunder, Sixers, Maps. That's a pretty tough schedule to expect the Suns to keep winning out. And honestly, if the Grizzlies can maybe just get like one more game, yeah, they can just get one game in the bubble. That that actually might be enough just to hold at least ninth and get into the play-in. But I almost don't think it matters it matters for them because they're a young team and obviously they want to at least be in the play-in. But I'm saying, if you're just thinking about it from the perspective of like who's getting into the playoffs, I don't think it matters because I think at this point, like Portland is cruising to the eighth spot. And if they get the eighth seed, especially if Memphis is the nine without Jackson and Portland just has to win once, like that's that's a pretty uphill battle for the Grizzlies. So I, I'm not ruling out them at least being in the play-in because I don't think they need maybe more than one or two at the most wins to do it. But in terms of who's getting that eight seed right now, barring catastrophe, to me, it seems like the Blazers are just hitting cruise control. Well, I mean, the Blazers' next four games are no cakewalk either. They're, they're looking at playing the Clippers, Sixers, Mavs, and I guess Nets. So they, they do have one gimme in there. Uh, and I guess the Sixers are banged up now, so maybe that won't be that difficult. And, and maybe the Clippers won't be playing for much, I guess. I mean, we saw like last night's game between Portland and Denver was a perfect example of how these schedules are not necessarily what they appear to be on paper. Um, I mean, for one thing, Denver is just has been playing without a ton of guys uh, because they had an outbreak of the virus from what I can tell. And, and that's why like they're bringing these guys along and they haven't been playing yet, at least for some of them. I don't know really what what's the deal with Jamal Murray. Like, why isn't Murray playing? Hamstring soreness. Yeah, Murray... Has, is dealing with that injury. Uh, Gary Harris hasn't played. Will Barton hasn't played. They've sort of got this patchwork guard rotation that they're throwing out there. And then they just decide that they aren't particularly interested in winning that game. So they're resting guys down the stretch and, and the Blazers are able to take it. Uh, so, you know, looking at these team schedules may not be all that instructive. We don't we don't know what these games are ultimately going to look like. So we'll see. I, I do think, you know, just given what we've seen and how they've played. It's hard not to pick the Blazers. Dame Lillard has been completely out of his mind as he's been basically all season. I mean, that game against Denver last night was just an absolute masterclass in pick and roll orchestration, which has been Lillard all season. Like I've, I've pointed out those numbers a few times now because they're just so ridiculous. But like, if you want to see what that actually looks like, just go and watch Lillard's highlights from last night's game because the number of things that he can do to destroy your pick and roll coverage, any pick and roll coverage, whether it's a switch, whether it's a drop, whether it's a blitz, he will find the seams in it and he will burn you. And, you know, whether it was like burrowing into the lane for layups, whether it's making that pocket pass, um, pulling up for three, like he has just gotten so unbelievably good at running the pick and roll with with whoever. I mean, he, he did it with Whiteside all year and Whiteside is basically just like, a straight up dive man. And now he's doing it with Nurkic, who is a better screen setter, who's giving him a little bit more space to work with. And also a secondary playmaker in the pick and roll where he catches the ball in the short roll and he can take it into the basket for a layup or a little push shot. Uh, and he can make that next pass. There's been like a lot of really nice big to big passing, I think with him and Collins, um, whether it's high, low action or just like that tic-tac-toe in the pick and roll with uh, the roll man dishing it to the guy in the dunker spot or cutting along the baseline. That's been really nice to see. Gary Trent Jr. is like a human flamethrower shooting 22 for 35 from three in the bubble. Are you kidding me? 22 yeah. for 35. Yeah, He's one of the bubble breakouts. It's insane. And I, I liked Gary Trent. Like he, he showed a lot of flashes, you know, toward the tail end of the season before the shutdown. And I, I, thought he was definitely Portland's best perimeter defender with Ariza out. 
And that's certainly borne out as well. Like his perimeter defense, I think has been really strong, but for him to be shooting like this is just ridiculous. And, and obviously Nurkic has been great. We've talked about that before, but he continues to just look every bit as good as he was before that injury, which is just wonderful to see. I would pump the brakes a little bit. Like I've seen a lot of people saying, oh man, this is going to be a tough matchup for the Lakers. Like Lakers don't want to see the Blazers in the first round. And like, I love the Blazers. They've been super fun to watch. Maybe my favorite team to watch in the bubble. I don't think the Lakers are really sweating that matchup um, because first of all, the Blazers defense is still not great. Uh, Nurkic has helped a little bit, but they're, their sort of lack of wing defense, I think, is still going to be an issue, especially against the Lakers. And as good as Gary Trent, I think, has been defending guards, he doesn't really have the size to give LeBron any kind of problem. Um, and that's something, like, for the Lakers, honestly, like, they must be looking at this field and just feeling pretty good about whatever first-round matchup they get because it's kind of the case for all of these teams, with the possible exception of the Suns because of how good Mikael Bridges has been defensively and how long and strong he is. But like, apart from that, it's like all of these teams sort of have that same problem. The Grizzlies do not have a big wing defender. The, the Blazers don't, the Pelicans don't, um, the Spurs don't like none of these teams really have yeah. any answer to LeBron. And I think that's going to be the undoing for all of them. And like, maybe, maybe the Blazers can, can take a game or possibly even two because the Lakers guard defense isn't all that strong with Avery Bradley out. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Over under 1.5 wins for the Blazers in that series. I would take the under. I would, I'd, I'd pick it to go five. Same. But I think it, it, that, that has the potential to be like a fun five gamer. I don't, I don't know that I'd go much further than that. I don't, I don't even care about that right now. Like I'm just enjoying watching these teams battle it out for the eighth spot and, and just treat it like their championship. You know what I mean? Like playing with so much urgency and like they have so much on the line, even if they won't wind up getting swept in the first round, like it clearly means a lot to these teams. It means a lot to the Blazers to keep their playoff streak going for the Spurs to keep their playoff streak going for the Suns to end their playoff drought and the Kings, the same thing. It doesn't really matter whether or not they have a chance in the first round. I think it would mean a lot to any of these teams to just make it in and I'm just I'm enjoying watching all of them play except I'm not really enjoying watching the Pelicans play to be honest yeah no they they like I said they've been by far the most disappointing of these teams Um, obviously Zion hasn't been completely unleashed yet anyway and uh, they're facing a pretty uphill battle now as I mentioned they it's not just that they're two back of Portland they're two back of Portland and need to leapfrog four teams with four games left like it even against that cream puff schedule I think that's asking too much you think so eh if they win out they're in yeah, but what? Yeah, they, I, okay. If they win out, they're in. But what indications have they given you in the bubble that they're going to win out? You know, like. Well, it's almost not even about that. Like they're playing Wizards, Spurs, Kings, Magic. Like realistically, they should win out. And I know it's weird to say that. They've I, already I, lost to the Kings. I know, I know. But I, <laughs> but I still think that they're a better team than the Kings. And and that loss to me was inexcusable. Not just that they lost, but how they lost. I, like, that was an embarrassing defensive performance. That's twice now they've laid an egg in the. And I know one of them was against the Clippers, and they're overmatched. But still, like the the effort level, or at least the perceived effort level in that game and the Kings game. For a team that has this cream puff schedule and was considered a favorite to get in the playoffs with this young star and all that, and they've laid two giant embarrassing eggs in the bubble. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because their interior defense was the thing that I was really concerned about coming in. And it their defense had actually been totally fine through the first three games. Maybe that has something to do with the teams they played. Um, you know, the Jazz without Bogdanovich and the Grizzlies in the state that they're in are not particularly strong offensive teams, but I mean, for them to, for them to get beat the way that they did, I mean, the Kings were just like, the Kings shot the ball incredibly well, but they also just like back cut the Pelicans into oblivion. Like there's no communication on the back end. We got to talk about Zion's defense at some point. Like it's a mess and it's difficult because like, I think there's maybe a little bit more the Pelicans could do to protect him. Like I kept like the, there was a certain point where the Kings were just like targeting him every single time down the floor. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe the Pelicans could try and do some pre-switching to just keep him out of those actions and, and try to protect him with a little bit more help from the wing. But like, it's, I mean, Derek favors continues to just not look great. And once any team breaks through that first line of defense and really like the only guy who's doing work at the first line of defense is drew holiday. Who's been great, but like, he can't hold that defense together by himself. 
And Ingram, who is super long and should have the tools, I think, to be a good defender, just so often takes shortcuts and reaches rather than moving his feet to stay in front of guys. And so, you know, you combine that with the fact that they're just, there's like a lack of awareness um, when there's, they're getting back screened, um, when, you know, a big is sort of playing one on two and is not getting the rotation. Nobody's tagging the roller from the wing. Uh, it's really concerning. So they need to shape up at that end of the floor, or I certainly do think that they're not going to get in, but I I still think that their schedule is cakey enough that they could win out or even go three and one and still get into that play in. You mentioned just how refreshing it is to see, like for some of these teams even have this to play for the Kings are tied right now for the second longest postseason drought in NBA history. The Suns, this is their first 30-win season in five years, and they haven't made the playoffs in a decade. And that I think most people thought that would be extended by another year, that Suns drought. And lo and behold, with that brutal schedule, which I think statistically was the toughest schedule in the West, in the bubble, they are undefeated. And they're doing it in fun, dramatic fashion. You've got Devin Booker hitting a game winner against the Clippers. You've got Devin Booker, you know, having five fouls early in the third quarter against your Indiana Pacers and the Suns bench and secondary players like stepping up. 21 nothing run led by campaign and Dario Sarge campaign, man. I mean, I I guess we, we probably owe the Suns an apology for, saying that they had no business being in the bubble. Um, but if you look at it, I mean, they went into the hiatus. They were six, ga- they were six games out of eighth, and they had four teams to leapfrog in order to get into that play-in while also making up two games in the standings. I think most projection systems gave them less than a 1% chance of getting in. And it's just been, I mean, it's maybe been the story of the bubble so far, how well they've played. If you ignored their record, I do think like all their peripherals suggested they were just as good or better than a bunch of the teams ahead of them in the standings, um, the Kings and Spurs at least. And I-, I was like thinking back to their really, really strong start at the beginning of the season when I think we both were feeling like they had actually turned a corner. And I don't think we necessarily thought they were going to make the playoffs, but I think we thought that their improvement was real. And they're certainly proving that now. And, and that starting lineup with... Rubio, Booker, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, and Ayton has just been destroying teams. And DeAndre Ayton, man, like, I think Booker deserves the bulk of the credit for how successful they've been. He's just gotten so smooth and so confident and so patient as like a scorer and a playmaker. He is one of, he makes some of the best one-handed skip passes in the league, I think. He's gotten to a point where the game has really slowed down to, slowed down for him so much. Uh, he knows exactly what he wants to do at the offensive end. And whether it's making plays for himself or for others, he's doing it at an unbelievably high level. But Aiton has come a really long way in a really short amount of time, especially, especially at the defensive end of the floor. And there were just a whole bunch of possessions in that Pacers game where it was like he really popped off the screen. And I think so much of it for him has just been like recognizing how fucking huge he is and like how to use his size to his advantage don't get turned around cut out like the herky jerky leaving your feet biting on pump fakes like all this skittish movement that you saw last year where he was getting himself out of position he's so much more still now and it's like he's figured out how to just leverage his length there was there was one possession um in that game where he came up to trap tj warren up top and so he brings the trap and it's like, not only is he, does he force Warren to pick up his dribble, but he's, Miles Turner is slipping into the middle of the floor underneath the trap. And Aiton, who is, again, enormous, is denying that entry pass. And essentially what happens is with, um, with Aiton coming up to set that trap um, and Turner slipping, Booker has to come in from the corner to tag Miles Turner so he doesn't just get like a free run to the rim. Warren passes the ball to the wing because he can't make the entry feed into the middle. And from the wing, I think it was maybe Aaron Holiday, can't find Turner because Booker's there. And so Oladipo, who Booker was guarding in the corner, cuts toward the basket and Holiday throws up essentially a lob for Oladipo. And Aiton, 
who would come up to trap TJ Warren, just like turns around, sprints back and manages to deflect the pass at the rim. And it's like, he was just not making plays like that, like high IQ plays like that last season. And I think that's just like a huge development for them. And he's looking at me like a guy who has a chance to be like a legitimate two-way stud and one who, I don't know if the the Suns are ever not going to regret passing on Luca, but I do think that they have a legitimate player on their hands and that they, the Booker Aiton two man combo um, is going to have some real staying power in the league. Yeah, it's going to be a devastating pick and roll combo for eternity, essentially, it feels like. Um, but yeah, the most encouraging thing about Aiton's development, especially on the defensive end, is that he seems like a wiser player. It seems like he knows the intricate details of the game better than he did last year, which is, you know, as it should be for a sophomore, but it's not always the case, as you know. And the fact that he, you know, seems to have committed to really understanding the game better, I think has to be the most encouraging thing for Suns fans watching his development. Yeah, but between between Booker and Aiton, the Suns are in great shape, man. And and who the hell would have thought we'd be saying that at this point of the year? But they're in great shape and we'll probably troll them about the TJ Warren thing forever because it was, it's not, again, like I said last week, it's not that they got rid of TJ Warren because... They, they ended up using that space to get Ricky Rubio, which makes a hell of a lot of sense for them. And that's the exact kind of steady point guard play Booker and the Suns have needed for a long time. It's just that they gave Warren away for nothing. But um, overall, the way they started to construct this roster around Booker and Aiton does start to make sense. Like, again, love the Rubio pickup, and he's been great for them. He's been exactly what they need. Mikel Bridges... You want to talk about a guy that's looking like a two-way, maybe not like a, a star type of stud, but could develop into like a really nice three and D piece. His, his three-point shot is coming along. He looks like an impact defender. You slide that guy into a lineup with Booker and Ayton, and, you know, Oubre has some injury issues, but he's developed into a pretty decent, nice young player. Like the, there are some pieces there. They need some more depth because I think other than that surprising run uh, against the Pacers on Thursday, it's still asking too much of this Suns depth and bench to do much of anything. But yeah, as they continue to fill out this roster and they, if they remain patient, but also target the right guys when it is time to be aggressive, I, there are some legitimate reason for optimism for the Suns. And again, considering that this team went literally the first four years or five years of Devin Booker's career without even winning 25 games, this is such a boon for Suns fans. Yeah. And I mean, they're doing all this without Ubre too, who I thought had a really nice season. And yeah. I, I'm very fond of the player that he's become. I think he... He fits their system really well too. And Monty Williams deserves a lot of credit because he has installed a really motion and pass heavy system where guys are sharing the ball. And I think they lead the league in possessions finished off of cuts. And Ubre is a great cutter, plays really well off the ball. The three-point shot still hasn't fully come around, but I think as a guy, you know, who can do some stuff by putting the ball on the floor uh, and is just like a really header heady cutter into space. Um, and, and also a solid defender who's long, um, and has has become really effective, I think, as a helper. You throw him into the mix, and uh, like Cam Johnson, which is a draft pick a, a lot of people dumped on, has looked really good uh, as a guy who can obviously shoot the hell out of the ball and is a much better defender than seemingly anybody expected him to be. I, I do think, like, first of all, they, they've absolutely proved that they belong, uh, you know, with the rest of the teams in this bubble, but they're just providing a lot of optimism for the future and maybe even building something sustainable here. So I think, you know, even if they don't make it into the play-in tournament, um, I feel like this will have been a huge success for them. I mean, that's all you could really ask for as a Suns fan. I guess you could also ask that they not sell their G League team in the midst of all this. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. even Sarver gonna at the end of the day, Sarver gonna start. Yeah, even in you know it's been the best stretch and the most encouraging stretch for this team in what like eight years. Yeah, uh, the Suns still have to remind you that they are the Suns. Yeah, and that and that's what should be concerning, right? Because they're always they're always like a couple Sarver penny pinching decisions away from just going right back to being the Suns we all know and do not love. Yeah, the team that the Suns and all these other West playoff hopefuls are vying to compete against in the first round of the playoffs are the Los Angeles Lakers championship favorites already locked down the number one seed in the West. And, you know, not really much reason to be concerned about seeding games for a team that's already seeded number one in their conference. However, their offense has been a disaster for the most part in the bubble. 22nd and 22 teams in the bubble. Yeah, that's bad. And uh, as you pointed out to me off air yesterday, um, LeBron making some cryptic 
comments. It's very reminiscent of like Cle- like late stage Cleveland LeBron. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm not totally convinced he's not going to take a week off and go rehab in Miami um, and then come back to the bubble the way he's talking. So I know you've got the quote there. If you want to let um, our listeners who may not have known that he said this know what he said on Wednesday or Thursday. Yeah, this is from uh, Joe Varden piece after the Lakers got their asses kicked by the Thunder. Um, LeBron said, it's just some things that you can't control that's here that I don't really want to talk about that's off the floor. Um, and so when he was pressed on that, he said, it's just a totally different situation than any other situation I've been in, in my career. I have zero experience having the number one seed inside of a bubble during seeding games playing in August. This is all a learning experience for all of us. And we're going to take it day by day and continue to work on our habits, either on the floor during the film session, when we're able to get on the floor as well. But this is a totally different season, a totally different drastic situation for all of us, including myself. Um, so yeah, the weirdness there obviously is like the first bit of that quote where he's saying, um, some things you can't control that I don't want to talk about that's off the floor and, you know, kind of classic cryptic LeBron, no idea what he might be referring to, but look, I think if you were someone who was kind of like you are, you know, have been riding with the Lakers from the start of the season, I don't know how much stock you should put in any of this, whether it's his comments or their performance so far inside of the bubble. But I do think for someone like me, who's been a little bit of a Laker, a Laker skeptic this year, this does add some fuel to the fire. And the fact that their offense has been so disappointing, the fact that they've shot the ball so poorly, I mean, they got outscored 63 to six from behind the three point line against the Rockets last night. And I know LeBron didn't play all those caveats apply, but like they shot two for 19 from deep. And I think as a team, they're shooting like sub 25% in the bubble. Like there's got to be a little bit of concern there. No, especially given that there was already a little bit of worry about their kind of lack of secondary playmaking and what's going to happen when LeBron's off the floor or if teams blitz him and manage to get the ball out of his hands, like are other guys on this team going to be able to step up? Like, I don't know, man. I, I, I am like a little bit concerned about the Lakers right now. Sure, There is a level of concern there for me as someone who, has maintained all year that I think the Lakers are going to win the championship. I am more concerned than I was a week ago or two weeks ago. Won't lie about that. Having said that, I still think it's tough again in seeding games that really don't matter for this team after such a long layoff, you know, with a couple hits to their depth. I'm concerned, but I'm not that concerned. Like I still have faith that once, once it's playoff time, which isn't that far away, it's like a week and a half away. I have faith in LeBron to do the LeBron thing, kind of rally the troops, pull whatever team he's got together, go into LeBron playoff mode. And I'm pretty confident two or three games into the playoffs, we'll be sitting here talking about how great um, LeBron has made the Lakers look. Now, if two or three games into the playoffs, we're talking about a Lakers team that's like struggling to put the Blazers away or something or the Suns away, um, then yeah, I think that's when my concern level would truly rise. But I think for now, it's more of like a bit of, uh, well, it wouldn't be cautious optimism. It's like right now, a bit of hopeful pessimism on my end as opposed to uh, full on panic mode. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I really don't think we'll get the full measure of LeBron until the playoffs actually start. Like we've seen this before with his team's coasting a little bit down the stretch of regular seasons and there's a lot of concern trolling that goes on and the playoffs start and we're all reminded like oh yeah playoff LeBron still the best player in the world um but but I just think that you know as good as Anthony Davis is and I I I do think he is probably the best running (laughs) that Braun's ever had like the rest of that supporting cast is is a little bit sketchy and honestly waiters has been good for them and Kyle Kuzma has been good for them, but the extent to which they're relying on those guys is a bit concerning. And obviously, like, you know, guys like Danny Green are going to shoot the ball better. Um, like, KCP is probably going to shoot the ball better than he has so far. It's just like those guys really need to be hitting shots because outside of that, they're not providing value at the offensive end. And if opposing teams are able to run those guys off of the three point line, then I think. Uh, you know, it starts to get a little bit dicey for the Lakers offense. And we've seen that so far in the bubble. They just have not been able to put the ball in the hoop. Do you believe Anthony Davis is the best running mate he's ever had? Like, do you think Anthony Davis right now is better than 2010, 11, 12, 20? I don't know. Like, I think those those couple, those first two seasons 
of Wade next to LeBron was still was still the best player I think that LeBron's ever played with. When I say the best running mate, I think as far as a guy who compliments LeBron, um, you know, you combine that with Anthony Davis's skill level and just like the fit between those two guys. I do think it's like the best partnership that he's been in. It yeah. Career. Well, Anthony Davis will also get to prove um, that he is LeBron's best running mate once the playoffs start, given the lack of depth around them. Um, we're about 70 minutes in here and a week into the bubble. Before we wrap up this week's Pound the Rock, any other thing you want to get off your chest? Any other bubble boys you want to talk about? Or There is one bubble boy that I feel like we need to talk about. And we, we were talking about the Nuggets earlier and how they've been playing shorthanded. But Michael Porter Jr. has really stepped up and filled that void uh, in a way that I just didn't really see coming. And obviously, he showed flashes of this during the season, but he's putting all the pieces together right now. And oh my God, it is terrifying. Like the Spurs had absolutely no answer for him. The Blazers had no answer for him. He is looking just like so fluid as a shooter and as a scorer. Um, I mean, I, I think it's funny because like we talked all this time about what the, what needs to happen for the Nuggets to kind of take that next step, right? And I think so often it comes down to, can Jamal Murray become like a legitimate number two? And now I'm thinking like, maybe he doesn't have to. Honestly, like I'm not saying it's going to happen this season, but to me, Porter is looking like a guy that can maybe be the Nuggets' second best player moving forward. And... I, I just think it's really exciting because um, he's and like, obviously it's contingent on him staying healthy and the injury history is a bit worrisome, but I just, the way that he plays off of Jokic is so unbelievable. Um, he, he, he's just like knows exactly how to cut off of Jokic in the post. And it just seems like they really enjoy playing together. They already have such a nice synergy. And for a guy who is like six foot 10 to be able to move and shoot the way that he does, is a really nice package to have, especially, you know, obviously at the offensive end. The defense is, has been a lot slower in coming. I do think he's made some strides as an on-ball guy. Off-ball, he's still prone to kind of falling asleep, blowing rotations, getting back cut. But um, I think that stuff will come eventually. So, uh, Michael, so it's a pretty exciting development for the Nuggets. Michael Porter Jr. is a 22-year-old rookie who, in three games in the bubble, is averaging 31 points, 13 rebounds, a dime, a steal, and a block on 62-59-94 shooting. Is that, um, is that good? Yeah, it's decent. You know, talking about fun with small sample sizes, but small sample size or not, look, I think, and even to your point about, you know, it's not going to happen, probably won't happen this year, but he seems like the kind of guy that could be the second best player going forward above Jamal Murray. I don't think that's all that crazy at all. Like pe- people forget this is a guy that was projected to be a potential number one overall pick going into his lone college season and then ended up, I believe it was a back injury, right? That essentially sidelined him for the entire year. So it- it's not like we're talking about some guy that was completely under the radar. No one knew about him. And and now this is just some weird aberration in this three game small sample. Like it, this is a guy who has been highly touted his whole career, if not for injuries. And if if he's even obviously anything remotely close to what we've seen in these three games, not only do I think it's possible he he's going to be their second best player going forward, I think it's likely that he'll be their second best player going forward because I just think he's got some natural abilities, especially at his size, that Jamal Murray can never make up for, no matter how good Jamal Murray gets. So the Nuggets end up in a situation, you know, who knows how Jamal Murray will feel about it because, you know, he's got an ego himself, as he should, fine. But if the Nuggets can go forward and everything kind of falls into place of this pecking order, like Jokic, Porter, Murray, third on that pecking order, with maybe even Porter being more of like the number one scorer, even though Jokic is their best overall player, I think if you want to talk about a, like a young team in good shape going forward, man, it would be very hard to find a team with a better top three guys like 25 and under right now. Yeah, and I do think on paper, at least, there's no reason why those guys shouldn't fit together incredibly well. Absolutely. The offensive end, at least. Like that has the makings of a three-man core that should be like a top five offense in the league for like eight years. Uh, defensively, maybe it's a little more concerning, but I do think, I mean, Murray made huge strides defensively this season. And I think as far as just kind of like sharing the ball handling and playmaking and scoring load, like they're, they're kind of ideal complements to each other. And both Murray and Porter move so well without the ball that having Jokic be like the kind of hub playmaking from the high post should be really effective. And then you have, you know, both 
Murray and Porter, presumably long-term, are going to be guys who can create off of the bounce late in games when, you know, potentially if Jokic is getting swarmed or if, you know, you just, you need somebody essentially to initiate off of the bounce rather than from the post, um, either of those guys can do it. Um, there's also the, the chance, like I suggested before this season started, that the Nuggets should just offer Jamal Murray straight up for Bradley Beal. And given what Porter Jr. seems like he might become, I mean, that to me, <laughs> I really like Jamal Murray. Don't get me wrong. You heard it here first. Joe Wolfon calling Jamal Murray a fraud. That trade looks all the more appetizing for me. Um, if if the Nuggets could find a way to pull that off. I mean, the Nuggets find a way to get Bradley Beal without giving up Michael Porter Jr. We're talking about a legitimate like championship ceiling here. But you uh, think this is the thing. Like, do you think the Wizards can do can do better than Jamal Murray as a piece coming back, as a centerpiece coming back and trade for Beal? Probably not, but you never know. I don't think it's like I don't think it's that crazy that they could do better than that, but I'd say, yeah, surface level analysis, probably not. Yeah, like maybe he's not the only thing going out in that deal. I mean, of course, maybe yeah. Gary Harris goes with him, but I just think like they should have the pieces to get that deal done. And if they if they don't, like, fine. Again, I, I think Murray is going to be really good. I really do. I think his, his improvements have been incremental and subtle, but also meaningful. And if he continues on this trajectory, I think, you know, he has the, the chance to be an all-star in the future. So regardless, I do think the future is bright for the Nuggets. I don't know if it's going to happen for them this season, just because I don't know what's happening with their injuries and and the guys coming back from COVID. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see on that front. But um, even amidst all the kind of roster turmoil that they're dealing with right now, Porter Jr. has shined very bright. He has, as has this episode of Pound the Rock. <laughs> we will be back at some point next week. Not sure when. We'll just kind of play it by ear and see what's going on around the association. We've got a week left of seeding games. Next Friday is the seeding finale. And then next weekend, uh, the potential play-ins, which we're most likely getting in the West, probably not getting in the East, which is all good with us. Um, so yeah, at some point next week, whether it's uh, the middle of the week or the end of the week, as the play-ins are coming up, we will be back. But until then... For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock.